This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches Welcome back to the WOMED. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Anjali Malik. Anjali is our first radiologist and a breast radiologist at that. She serves of the Medical Advisory Committee for Be Bright Pink, a national nonprofit focused on the prevention of breast and ovarian cancers. We dig into her career, the myths around radiology, and the power in making an impact. Today's nursey energy moment comes from Brie of Messy Buns and Scrubs on Instagram. Brie is an EMT, ER tech, and air medical dispatcher, and she wrote in, This week, I took an emergency call from my air medical service, and we were called to a little town that had just been struck by a tornado. We sent all four of our aircrafts, and my partner and I worked endlessly to make sure everyone from the pilot and the med crews to the patients were safe. We were the only air service able to fly due to the weather. That's incredible. Bree, thank you so much for sharing. I also want to take a second to shout out all the 911 dispatchers out there. You guys are true unsung heroes, and no one in this medical community could do what they do without you. So thank you. All right, guys, today on the WOMED, we have Dr. Anjali Malik. I'm so excited to speak with her today. She is a you're actually our first radiologist. We've had an interventional radiologist, but yeah, we haven't Michelle. had. Yeah. Do you know Michelle? Well, I mean, in the same way that I know a lot of people online. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's the it's the Insta friend type exactly. thing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I'm curious. In our initial uh, correspondence, you said you're a former Tennessee girl. I am. I grew up in a small town in Northwest Tennessee. So nothing <gasps> really. Is yeah, nothing as cool as Nashville. It's um, it's two hours north of Memphis and about two and a half hours northwest of Nashville in the very tip-top corner um, right across the state border from Kentucky and Missouri. Oh, nice. Have you yeah. heard of Bucksnort? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's, a town. There's a town called Bucksnort, Tennessee, and it is on your way to Memphis um, on like 40 West. And so I don't know why that popped into my head. It's such a random name, but that that's one of those town names that stick with you. So I didn't know if you're familiar with that at all. Thankful that I'm not just because it was already (laughs) hard enough being an Indian girl growing up in a small town in Tennessee in the 1980s. So I I think from Bucksnort would have made it that much harder when I had to tell people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how did you get started in medicine? 
So my parents are both physicians, which is also why we ended up in our small town in Tennessee, because foreign medical graduates were um, finding positions um, in the small rural areas. Uh, They were being heavily recruited. Yeah, so my mom is family practice. She was your, I mean, she was your old school physician who was essentially your 24-7 life-to-death physician. When oh, I was cool. Yeah. So when I was little, she actually um, did um, obstetrics as well. So she did deliveries as part of her family practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, of course, did pediatrics, um, you know, adolescent medicine, adult medicine, internal medicine, and geriatrics. And I say that, you know, via the scope of general uh, family practice. So she was not subspecialized in any of those. And then thankfully, right. at some point, she gave up the the deliveries. But through her, I mean, I saw her in outpatient care, inpatient care, nursing homes. So she was really, you know, a huge exposure to medicine. And then my my dad was sort of the, I don't want to say exact opposite of that, but kind of because he was anesthesia. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Yes. Yeah. So of course, uh, totally different patient interaction, um, still doing a lot. And, and it, mm-hmm. it was amazing to hear him, like when he did eventually help me with chemistry and physics and, and you know, to hear him talking about those kinds of things and, and to see him in action. But, um, but yeah, so I, I had the two spectrums of medicine growing up. Um, and so there was always that sort of, uh, you know, the, the seed planted that I would want to be a doctor and that, mm-hmm. uh, or even the expectation, because um, I am a South Asian, uh, first generation <laughs> South Asian. And then the funny thing is I, I went through that rebellious phase where I was like, oh, I don't want to be a doctor. I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm, I'm going to go yeah. into... Um, you know, this, that, or the other. Public health was something that I was always interested in. Um, Outbreak was actually one of my favorite movies growing up. Uh, where yeah, Justin that was Hoffman, fantastic. Yeah, my husband and I actually just rewatched it recently, of course, with all of this going on. Um, kind of hits a little differently. It, it does. You're like, wow, look at their fully suited hazmat suits. So I'm like, kind of jealous <laughs> of that. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I always had this, you know, idea of the, you know, the save the world public health mm-hmm. um, person. And so I was lucky that I went to Johns Hopkins, which at the time was one of the only undergrad institutions that had public health as a major. So oh, really? Yeah. So I was able to do um, public health bachelor's um, and, you know, really get huge exposure there. I worked in health policy. I took virology classes. I, I really did the, the full spectrum. Oh, that's fascinating. And and interestingly, through that, I kind of came back to medicine because I realized mm. that I was not um, a researcher or like a, a, the kind of person who could work at something every day and not see the results. Mm-hmm. We need those people. Um, yes. Obviously, they, they um, <laughs> are, are really the ones that move society forward because they're, they're willing to put in that work um, for yeah. the long haul. Uh, but it turns out I'm goal-oriented and <laughs> I... <laughs> I need to see that end result every day, and that's fine too. Yes, um, we need all types of people. Exactly. So <laughs> that sort of pushed me um, back towards medicine, and um, you know, pre med is hard. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly demoralizing at times, um, but but mm-hmm. thankfully, I was able to survive and uh, made it to med school. Went to Tulane, where I actually almost considered an MD MPH because they have an amazing. School of Public Health, and they're really well known for their tropical medicine. Um, yeah. And then Hurricane Katrina decided otherwise for me. I, I decided that I had had enough uh, extra stuff piled onto my MD. So 
How was that for you in medical school? So, I mean, it was a traumatic experience for all involved. I, I certainly came out better than some in that I did not lose um, many belongings. I didn't lose mm-hmm. a home. Um, I was living in an apartment at the time. And um, I, I was just really fortunate in that regards. But otherwise, it was a, an extremely stressful process. So to, to give you some background, Hurricane Ivan was supposed to have hit New Orleans the year before. And everyone mm-hmm. evacuated. We, you know, had the, made this huge deal about it, and it ended up hitting Mobile, who, you know, they did suffer greatly there, but New Orleans right. didn't. And so, mm-hmm. we sort of, it was sort of like the boy who cried wolf, or, yeah. or so we thought, mm-hmm. um, when Hurricane Katrina was coming around. And my class had just come off their first exam block of second year, so we had been under a rock. We hadn't heard anything about this hurricane. Um, and when it was time to evacuate, a lot of us were like, really? Like, are we going to do that again? Should mm-hmm. we? We totally did it last minute. It took everyone, you know, the stories that you've heard about the hours to get out of town and, and, and things like that. All of that was true. And none of us left with a sufficient amount of clothes or books or any of our possessions. Mm-hmm. So, so that was, um, of course, a, a teaching point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we're really lucky that uh, Michael DeBakey, who is a, the famous cardiothoracic surgeon, you know, you've got instruments named after him, you've got aortic dissections named after him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a Tulane alum. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, he had previously been in the Tulane surgery department. So he um, helped motivate and finance the um, transition from Tulane to, you know, being in New Orleans to being in Houston for a whole year or nine months, basically. So you guys had to switch your, um, you finished out the rest of like your schooling in Houston then? No. So only those nine months of our second year. Oh, okay. Okay. So you could say that, yes, there were some people who finished out, you know, their fourth year in Houston Mm -hmm. or actually at schools across the country because the LCME, the governing body for medical schools did relax a lot of the rules when it came to away rotations and, and core rotations and so it was a really interesting time for, for everyone involved, um, you know, in terms of how it affected my education personally, mm-hmm. it, it did expose us to Baylor and UT Houston students. It exposed me, honestly, to the state of Texas. Um, <laughs> I don't think I had been to Texas other than going in and out of DFW airport yeah. um, until Katrina. And uh, of course, that's where I ended up doing my residency. So clearly... Um, it had an impact in terms of um, learning more about the institutions. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, you know, um, I, like I said, I was overall far more fortunate than others, but when people in my class lost everything, um, there was a lot of, it was a huge and heavy emotional toll. Mm-hmm. Um, even for those of us that didn't lose anything, because we went through that panic of, you know, are, do we have a school? Are we going to be doctors? Um, you know, are we going to have to find someone else to accept, um, us as students? Um, yeah. you know, what, what's, what's the future? So there was definitely a month to six weeks there where, um, where we were definitely in limbo. Uh, and that was really stressful. Yeah. Nashville just got hit. Well, I guess oh, with the, tornado. the beginning of March. Yeah, yeah. With the tornadoes and there's still 
so much work that that needs to be done from that that's obviously been halted from covid but i mean again like we the tornado sirens go off and you're like well it never hits nashville it never hits nashville and like this time it did and right. i i was also displaced for about a week so like i can't complain like i'm very grateful but still it's it's very unsettling being thrown out of your home and not being able to get back in there or not knowing what to take and your phone's about to die. And you're like, I just, I don't have an electricity. I can't call any, it, that was a mess. That was, that was an absolute mess. Absolutely. You know, the funny thing, two funny points about Katrina or ironic or, or, or what have you is um, I had never sent a text message until hurricane Katrina. Um, oh really? Yeah. So, you know, text messaging was, was new, new ish. And the reason that I had to send texts was because 504 numbers, so the, the New Orleans area code or that, you know, Louisiana area, were unable to accept phone calls, but they could accept text messages. And oh, that's yeah, wild. So the only way I could communicate with half the people, you know, half of my classmates was via text messages. And so, um, you know, of course, when... And this is still back T9 texting, right. you know. Oh you, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was good at it, but yeah, it's clearly not... Mm-hmm. But but so it was it was funny the first time that phone bill came and I had to tell them no like I didn't send these for fun I sent these because I had to communicate with people to even see if they were okay. And the other right. irony is that um, you know when I was at Hopkins and I was doing my med school interviews I actually was unable to go to my Tulane interview the first time around because of Hurricane Isabel that hit the East Coast. Oh my yeah, goodness! So, you know you want like some foresight or some what do you call it like a harbinger I I, yeah. I had to call them almost in tears and say I, I'm unable to get a flight out of Baltimore um, I'm gonna have to miss my interview mm-hmm. and they just laughed and they were like oh that's okay we normally have to be the ones doing this I mean <laughs> well that's yeah. good at least they, they yeah, understood that I would have you know registered that um and, and made a different decision <laughs> um but I love Tulane so much and, and that did not register with me so again just kind of funny how that works out. New Orleans is a really special city though. It's, it's like Nashville and that it has a certain like beat and soul to it. Um, But I feel like NOLA is just so much more mystical in a way. It's just, it's a cool, cool energy down there because there's so much history in in New Orleans. Absolutely. Um, You know, my sister just had her bachelorette party down there and Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, so I planned it. And so I, I, you know, helped steer us away from some of the yeah. traps that you might think of. I mean, we like hurricanes, well, yeah. like the drink, <laughs> yes, the drink and the weather, uh, thankfully, but cooperated. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there's so many great music gems, um, and mm-hmm. so many great restaurants and, and I don't even just mean the fine dining that's there now, just like those hole in the wall places and, and exactly, yeah. there's just such a great energy there. And, and so, um, so that was really, it was actually a really fun time to be back down there. Um, I mean, humidity aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I have never been much of a phone game person, but I've heard they can be great for engaging your brain. A friend told me about best fiends, not friends, fiends. This game is so fun. I get it. I get playing these games. I feel like I'm using a different part of my brain every time. Best Fiends is super easy to use and figure out. 
even for someone like me whose hand-eye coordination never mastered video game controllers. It's a casual game that you can spend as much or as little time as you want playing. Perfect to decompress during your lunch break. Anyone can play, but it's made for adults. I'm on level 25, and it's a great puzzle experience to keep your mind sharp. Best Fiends keeps updating the game monthly with new levels and events. You can share your progress socially if that's your thing. It's a free download that doesn't require the internet to play. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. So how did you find breast radiology and breast cancer, ovarian cancer? How did you find that niche that you were like, this is what I want to focus on? Like, this speaks to me. So, you know, again, it comes back to Hurricane Katrina, which is sort of the irony in that when we came back to New Orleans, I was, you know, now a third year and ready to start my clinical rotation. Mm -hmm. And of course we were coming back to substandard, um, you know, hospital situations. There were almost no psychiatric beds in New Orleans. Um, You know, we had uh, staff that had been, you know, let go and had moved on elsewhere. And, And on the flip side, we had staff at Tulane who had come from other hospitals that had had been flooded. And so on my general surgery rotation, I worked with a surgeon who was a general surgeon. He had done his training at Tulane. And after training, he had been at, I believe it was Memorial East that had flooded, but I would have to verify. And um, he had carved out a breast surgery practice, which you could do in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, Fellowships weren't as common. Um, and so back at Tulane, he was looking to sort of to, to drum up that business again. And so unlike the average medical student on their general surgery rotation, who was just doing, you know, laparoscopic cholecystectomies or open cholecystectomies or appendectomies and, you know, those types of things, which are your bread and butter of general surgery. Mm-hmm. I found myself doing a lot of fibroadenoma removals and breast cancer surgeries. And then in clinic, I was seeing those breast patients um, and we were doing a lot of um, biopsies as well in the office. Wow. And yeah. And, and so a couple of things from that, I realized I, I, I really liked working with that patient population. Mm-hmm. Um, predominantly you're dealing with, you know, um, 
women who that's the only concern that, that you're seeing them for, um, which I, I realized like when I was on internal medicine, I, I did not enjoy the management of hypertension or diabetes, which are clearly, um, you know, huge issues for our country and very people to manage them. Very. Right. I, I just happen to not be um, the person that's best to deal with those um, disease, that disease burden. So, so I, I liked uh, the pathology. I, I liked the patient population. And then sort of going back to my, you know, public health roots. I mean, it was, it was clear that this was a public health issue. So the women that I was seeing hadn't had access to care for a year or more, um, exacerbated, of course, by Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. So you were seeing those already underlying healthcare disparities um, just being magnified and amplified uh, by something like a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and it just seemed like such a good opportunity for um, impact, you know, getting access, preserving access, ensuring access for these women, educating them um, or, or future women, as it were, you know, on um, the importance of screening, the importance of uh, self-exam, things like that. And so, so the breast surgeon, um, you know, is who I worked with. I realized that surgery maybe wasn't as interesting to me. Um, and uh, he was the one that directed me towards um, breast and women's imaging. Wow. And, uh, and yeah, and the rest goes from there. So it's, it's funny how you need, you know, all the dominoes have to fall for, for the end result. So I don't know if, I would have been a breast imaging radiologist if Hurricane Katrina hadn't happened. So, isn't that wild to think about? I was having that discussion um, with one of my girlfriends the other day, and we we're like, we've both been through some some more serious traumas and stuff in our life, and how those different huge events, while we wouldn't wish them on anybody, really impacted the people that we are today and the choices that we made. Absolutely. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, you need the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you might not want them, but they are all part of, yeah, what, you know, shaping who we are, shaping who we become and building that resilience and building that, um, that ability to, to withstand. So, so, and in this case, I mean, it was a, a completely unexpected uh, side effect of, yeah. of the crisis, but, but I mean, I was the girl who, you know, and it's a notion that I try to fight, but, um, I was the girl who said, why would I ever want to be a radiologist? That looks so boring. That sounds so boring. (laughs) Why would I want to sit in a dark room? I wouldn't get to see patients, all things that I now try to fight as, as misconceptions of radiology, um, that I, I totally, you know, um, fell prey to. And and so I am super thankful, uh, on the other end that I, you know, I had that exposure that taught me differently, but yeah. Why do you think there is that conception? I mean, so explain radiology to me, but a lot of people think you are just sitting in a room, you know, you're, you have your radiology techs that are, you know, putting someone through the CT, MRI, um, the mammograms, anything like that. And then you as a doctor are reading through the results afterwards and then doing consultations. Right. So, you know, let me preface by saying that if you want to be a radiologist who sits in a dark room and never talks to a patient, you can absolutely find a way to do that. Uh, <laughs> that said, most of us aren't like that, um, or at least right. many of us, and specifically breast imaging radiologists are, are definitely not that. I see patients every day. I do procedures almost every day. 
Um, I'm interacting with, with other physicians. Um, you know, I'm working on policy, I'm working on public health. So, so for mm-hmm. me, that, that is absolutely a misconception. Um, you know, I don't even wear scrubs to work. I actually just ordered scrubs this past week. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I haven't worn scrubs since uh, like my, you know, re- residency. Um, mm-hmm. And I just ordered scrubs because now with COVID, we're sort of thinking like, okay, you know, we, we need some easily machine washable sturdy clothes because, right, you know, right. dry cleaning is not going to not going to cut it right now. So there's that misconception for sure, but radiologists do more than, you know, just interpret images as it were. Um, Mm -hmm. So the fields of interventional cardiology, uh, a lot of the endovascular procedures um, that now vascular surgeons are doing, those were Mm -hmm. all created by interventional radiologists. Um, oh, wild. And, and interventional radiologists, I mean, at some point were just radiologists as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and, and same, I mean, the neurointerventional procedures, all those procedures started with an x-ray and a radiologist and a wire. Um, you know, I mean, fluoroscopy didn't exist at some point and right. you're just taking these, these single x-ray images. So, so yeah, we might not be do- the ones doing, you know, we're not doing cardiac cath anymore. And, and in some instances you have neurointerventionalists, but in others you have, uh, you know, a, a neurosurgeon doing some of those coils and clips. Um, mm-hmm. intracranially, but a lot of those procedures were created by radiologists. So again, already, you know, uh, sort of smashing in my mind that misconception that, that we um, are stuck in a dark room. Mm-hmm. We, and we do image-guided um, procedures and therapies. I mean, I have a colleague at my practice who does musculoskeletal um, ultrasound procedures all day, every day. She is in high demand. She sees patients the entire day. Um, wow. I'm sure she would love to sit in a dark room by herself someday, <laughs> if we're being honest, you know, I mean, who doesn't want to do that sometimes? Oh yeah. We all need a break. So again, the idea of sitting in the dark. Yeah. You know, if I have to burn through 50 or a hundred screening mammograms, there's no other way to interpret them than sitting in the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not, that's not even, you know, 50% of what I do. So, so what do you do on a typical day? Well, there are out no, of COVID. <laughs> right, exactly. There are no typical days, but, but in general, for a breast imaging radiologist, you're looking at, again, screening mammography, mm-hmm. um, diagnostic mammography, and the differences of those are screening is asymptomatic women. So your background population who's of screening age, mm-hmm. which is annually um, for every woman over the age of 40. And um, then your diagnostics are for those women who have symptoms. So a lump, pain, nipple discharge, um, skin changes, mm-hmm. or um, have strong family history or a known genetic mutation or personal history, um, or some other you know, surgical indication. They're, you know, it's right before they're going to have a reduction or it's just after they've had a reduction, et cetera. So for the screening mammography, yes, sitting in a room, you know, dark room um, by myself. Um, but diagnostics, you're seeing every single one of those patients mm-hmm. and, um, you know, having discussions with them, uh, going over plans, assessments, recommendations. And if they need an ultrasound for further imaging, um, I'm the one that's performing those in my practice. So there are practices where it would be an ultrasound technologist. Um, in mine, we perform our own breast ultrasounds. So again, I'm seeing, if I do that all day, sometimes I'm seeing, 28 patients in a day. Holy um, cow. 
Yeah. And so it's, it's not the same as a primary care visit, right? That's, mm-hmm. I'm not writing up these long notes and, and, you know, talking about smoking cessation with each one, but so, so sometimes it's as easy as your mammogram, like fine, see you next year. And sometimes you're having this really in-depth conversation about, you know, areas of concern and needing a mm-hmm. biopsy. And a lot of what I do is um, managing emotions, honestly. Yeah. Um, Cause women are scared. Mm-hmm. I understand why they are. Um, I wish they weren't. I, I think in our, you know, breast cancer awareness and our pink ribbon campaigns, we, we, the pink ribbons are really just incited panic attacks. Um, and the, <laughs> and the awareness has really just become more of anxiety instead of action. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, I don't fault the women for that. I, I think that, you know, I just think that the efforts have been a little misguided and we're not empowering women in a way that would be helpful to them. My, my patients are terrified of coming to get their mammograms. They're terrified when they get called back in. And, and I work mm-hmm. my hardest both in the clinic and, you know, on my social media platforms and on things like this to try to say, look, you know, 10% of women who get a screening mammogram will get called back. And, and out of that less than, you know, 2% will go on to have cancer. Mm-hmm. So the, I mean, the numbers being what they are, it's, it's almost, you know, there's a very low chance. So if you're just doing what you're supposed to do, right. Living yeah. a healthy lifestyle, getting your annual screening mammogram, doing regular self-check, seeing your doctor mm-hmm. and, and, you know, making sure you're reducing your risk in ways that you can, then, you know, we just have to like live our lives and, 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 and go through the checks and, and, and see what happens. Have you ever wondered what you're exactly paying for with big wireless companies? You get your bill and you're like, what happened to the $69.99 I thought I was spending? Hold up. You added another $40 in charges? That was me. Between expensive retail stores, hidden fees, and inflated prices, you're being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. When I heard about Mint Mobile, I had to do a double take. I'm sorry, you're telling me I can pay as low as $15 a month? I checked out their website and sure enough, Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is done online. They save on retail locations and overhead and those savings are literally passed directly to you. For $15 a month, you get unlimited nationwide talk and text. Then you can choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. So you stop paying for data that you might not use. You keep your phone and same phone number. Then they send you a SIM card to swap out. You can even go to the site and type in your address or addresses you frequent like where you work to see what your coverage will be like in those areas. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get your plan shipped to your door for free, go to Mint mobile.com slash WOMED. That's mint, M-I-N-T, mobile.com slash WOMED. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash WOMED. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. I, I wish you would have been my <laughs> diagnostic radiologist. I had a um, a bit of a scare. Um, it was probably about a year ago now. And my um, I had implants placed like two and a half, almost three years ago now. Never had any issues. And last year I had this like horrible pain in my left breast. And it looked, I didn't know if it was like a cellulitis infection around it, but it was swollen. And it was like this definite like demarcation on my skin. And I like, I went into the doctor and I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, (laughs) my grandma's had issues. My mom's had issues. And I mean, I was 33 and I just started crying because they're like, we're going to have to have you go in and get like a mammogram and um, like an ultrasound because we just don't know what it is. And I just remember sitting in that room, like the waiting room, and I was just terrified. I was crying. And then the the tech that took me back, she was so, so kind and like was putting me at ease. And then diagnostic radiologist came in and, and did the ultrasound. And I mean, from what they decided, it was a very weird non-lactating mastitis or something. And it just went away. Right. And I've never had any issues, but it was definitely, I was definitely scared. And absolutely. And, and in no way am I trying to, you know, minimize the feelings that we each have. I mean, you know, it's our bodies. We have every right to be concerned. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's a way to empower our patients right. where, you know, because the only thing we can do is put one foot in front of the other when things exactly. happen and just learn how we can manage it or, or, or what the steps are that we can take to, um, to, you know, reduce our risk to prevent these kinds of things from happening. So again, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, and I, and I, you know, I know that I would be just as concerned, although I can say I have felt a lump in my breast before. And I did, um, I purposely did exactly what I tell my patients to do. I waited, I didn't, you know, freak out when mm-hmm. it persisted after a full menstrual cycle. Then I went and I got a mammogram because I was over the age of 30 and I got my ultrasound and, you know, so I, so I do try to practice what I preach. Um, yeah. But yeah, of course, you know, in the back of my mind, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm over the age of 30. I've got, you know, got all these hormones something through my body anything it could be anything so and mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've certainly seen breast cancer in young women um you know in, yeah. including in their 20s so I'm aware of of what can happen um I just don't want those I don't want the final message from those personal anecdotes to be that you should start freaking out when you're 20. I want right. the the right. message to be you know look you need to be aware of your health you need to be aware of your family history you need to know what your risks are and how to reduce them 
um, know when you need to start getting screened, you know, know if you're at high risk and, and go from there. So, um, so that's kind of what it is. Um, that's like, a, that's a much more empowering message. And you've been doing a lot of that work with um, uh, Bright Pink. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How did you get involved with them? Did you start that or? I did not. So Bright Pink is an, a national nonprofit that was actually founded by Lindsay Avner, who at the time was the youngest woman to be a previvor, which is to get a prophylactic mastectomy um, based on her uh, extremely high risk. I, I think she does have a known genetic mutation. Okay. And so, so now the previvor concept is, is, is much stronger. There are groups called Previvor that was founded by Alan Rose and um, you know, the Breasties um, formed by Paige. I don't know her last name. Um, but anyway, you've got these women, uh, groups of women who are educated and empowered and, and are, are taking steps, you know, taking their health in their hands. So bright pink, when I was first a practicing physician, I mean, I knew I wanted to, to be more active once I was out of training and I came across the organization and was like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. They're you know, educating and empowering young women and their providers on breast and ovarian health and how to, to take charge. And I emailed them and I, you know, wrote my whole spiel and I sent my CV and they said, um, in so many words, they said, uh, we were, you know, we're good right now. Um, and then I was, I applied again the next year. And this time I got the response. We're actually just not even sure what to do with you. Cause you're a radiologist and we're, we're mostly, um, seeing, you know, OB guides, like gynecologists um, uh -huh. that are interested in this. So, so why are you interested? And, and that is, is exactly like one of the points that I always try to discuss is that breast, for breast imaging radiologists, I mean, I don't just want to see people for their mammograms or, or just diagnose their cancer. I want to prevent them from ever getting it or I want to, right. you know, I want to make sure they're getting it detected when it's early. I want to make sure that they're getting screened, you know, at the appropriate time or getting that genetic mm -hmm. testing if they want to. So, so I, I understand why it was confusing for them that I applied, but at the same time, it's just, it's one of the things that I always find myself, um, you know, fighting as a radiologist. So, so now I'm on the medical advisory committee and, and I, you know, do a lot with them. Um, and I, I'm lucky to have, um, their resources to help spread the message, but I, I just, I always find that kind of humorous. I find that very humorous because that your specific profession that goes hand in hand with detection prevention. Like, I don't know why that wouldn't have occurred to them as you would be a fantastic asset to the team. Yeah. And of course, once I was, once I joined, they really, you know, I can talk um, with a little bit great, greater certainty about breast density or, or imaging yeah. or, or things like that. So it does make sense, but, but it, I mean, I see it all the time, I, every October when you have, you know, all the articles and all the magazines and, and, or, you know, the people on TV more often than not, it's an, um, an OB-GYN who's talking about breast cancer and I get it. They're wow. seeing, they're seeing all these women. Absolutely. But mm -hmm. you know, you'd, you'd be surprised when we do biopsies, which we didn't get to as part of my day, but I do um, biopsies and read MRIs as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but when we do biopsies and have positive cancer diagnoses, majority of our referring physicians prefer that we be the ones that give 
the positive diagnosis or the negative, you know, benign diagnoses, because Mm -hmm. we actually deal with that every day. Um, You know, and then can talk about next steps, can talk about a breast MRI to determine the extent of disease or can talk about early surgical and, and, and chemo steps. I mean, obviously that, that goes to the, you know, surgeon for those types of discussions, but I sit in breast cancer tumor boards. Um, yeah. you know, whereas, um, other physicians, you know, aren't necessarily doing that. So this isn't like a competition. I mean, we all take care of patients at the end of the day. Right. It's just, right. it's just the recognition that radiology is an integral part of, of these types of, um, this type of care. Wow. I mean, yeah, because otherwise you wouldn't know. I mean, like you're, you're very pivotal in diagnosing breast cancer and breast cancer treatment. So I'm curious though, how, so there's the whole non-essential employees right now, or I, I, it's hard to think of a certain aspect of medicine being seen as like essentially, but non-essential to like the current crisis. But I mean, people are still getting cancer. People are still having you know, accidents, um, people still have need diabetes treatment. They still need dialysis. You know, there's, there's still things happening. And I guess, how is the, how has the cancer community been affected right now? Well, it certainly has been um, affected because unfortunately, um, understandably, but unfortunately screening mammograms um, and other uh, cancer screening tests fall under the quote unquote elective um, procedures and services that are mm-hmm. not not currently being offered. So uh, no one's questioning that they're essential, um, right? Just that they're not urgent. And so that's been really hard for us. Um, a because it's the bread and butter of what we do, and so mm-hmm. you know uh, we're now I would say at one tenth of the you know normal. Um, workload, which places, um, you know, financial and emotional strains on a, on a practice. Mm -hmm. But also we know that there are women out there who, um, you know, we would have been able to detect that cancer early. um, And the hope is that we can just get them in as soon as possible when all of this has, um, you know, we've gained some level of control, which of course I think is going to come in the form of a rapid um, rapid and reliable tests, right? We have rapid tests right. that aren't reliable. We have antibody mm-hmm. tests that aren't reliable. Um, nothing's really FDA approved right now. So, um, so I think until we can get a, a rapid and reliable test, then we can use kind of like we do for a BUN and creatinine, right? When we're doing like a CT, yeah. like you don't get a CT if you have, you know, these levels or whatever. So it's kind of in the same Vain, I wonder if that's going to be the future of medicine for the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't, I mean, yeah, maybe we'll all be wearing our like ribbon that's like, I have a negative ribbon test. But, um, so I don't know uh, when we'll be able to offer those kinds of services. Um, when it comes to diagnostic services, so again, what I was talking about with, with patients who have symptoms, of course, you know, we're trying to um, triage those mm-hmm. um, to what is. Um, urgent versus what is not. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we, we all feel lumps and bumps. We're women, we have breasts and, and if you're of reproductive age, then, um, you know, the lumps and bumps, um, sometimes are part and parcel. 
And so it's a matter of uh, us using our clinical um, judgment and, and determining, you know, what needs a biopsy right now, what needs um, imaging right now, what, mm-hmm. what, um, what needs to move forward. Um, and then uh, MRIs, the same, you know, a lot of women get high risk screening MRIs based on their genetic profile. Um, and just, you know, that takes an IV placement and IV placement means close quarters, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's not as easy as saying, well, they're in the tube and the tech's in the other room. It's, you know, because if it's, it's all this close contact, a lot of those things have been halted. And when it comes to actual cancer care, it, it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but, you know, I think even in the, um, DC, Maryland, Virginia area, Virginia cancer surgeries are still moving forward and uh, including um, reconstruction. So, you know, some women will do oh. a mastectomy or bilateral mastectomy, get tissue mm-hmm. expanders, and then, you know, reconstruction. Whereas I believe, um, I don't know about what level of cancer surgery has been halted, but I do know for fact that there is no version of plastic surgery or reconstruction happening um, in Maryland. And so, you know, and, and these, these are in places that are, you know, 10 and 20 minutes from each other. Um, yeah. But they're just different jurisdictions. And so, um, you know, patients are being affected uh, differently. I mean, I, as part of Bright Pink, we do get questions um, that, that are, that I've been fielding from women across the country who um, like they're unknown uh, BRCA, the BRCA um, mm-hmm. gene carrier, and they were supposed to get their prophylactic mastectomy. Um, you know, to, to try to offer risk-reducing um, option for them. And it's been right. delayed. And that's really anxiety-provoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and I get it. I mean, I, I, I understand that they'd be anxious. And, and all of these decisions were made with the natural history of, of cancer in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, knowing that the average breast cancer, you know, what the doubling time is, or with the knowledge that you're going to have some poorly differentiated, fast growing cancers that will present themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll, you'll, hopefully we find them before, you know, on mammograms before patients feel them themselves. But I, I just, I think that that for this one or two month period, that's sort of the, the world of breast imaging right now. Yeah. I was wondering how elective um, mastectomies and stuff were being regarded right now because Again, just I can't imagine what it would feel like knowing something was in me or had the potential to grow in this time and not be able to treat it. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, some of that is probably moving forward now that there's been a greater response to um, the need for PPE. Mm-hmm. So to be honest, initially when, when things were starting to, you know, hit the fan as it were, there wasn't enough PPE. I mean, there continues to, to be a, a shortage of, of, you know, um, safe quality PPE, but, but right. it, the, the need was extremely acute, I would say in late March, early April. And that's when it made sense to press pause. Right. Um, right. Because we, we know a couple of weeks is definitely not going to make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do think it made sense for surgical centers um, and, and physicians across the country to, to press pause to at least allow the diversion of those types of supplies. Right, right. And, and now that you know, industry has responded, the government's responded, 
we've had a little bit more uh, lead time to to access and create and distribute those supplies. Mm-hmm. I think now we can say, okay, let's take a smart, measured, stepwise approach um, into what surgeries need to happen and what mm-hmm. can continue to be delayed until we really have the best grasp possible on um, how to prevent the spread of disease and, and how to make sure everyone's protected. Agreed. It, it's <laughs> This has been so unprecedented and hopefully we can gain a better plan, you know, if going forward, if, if something like this happens again, God forbid, <laughs> but I do have a question though. I was looking up radiologists and maybe it's different for specific breast ovarian diagnostic radiologists, but I found the study, it was granted it was from four years ago, but it was the most recent one. And it said that only about 24.7% of radiologists in the country were female. Is that the same like in your specific area or it's still uh, clearly highly male-dominated? So radiology as a whole is definitely a male-dominated field still. And it's certainly something that we as a field and then certainly as a woman in radiology, um, we're mm-hmm. aware of and, and working to um, address. So, mm-hmm. so a couple of different things. Um, as a breast imaging radiologist, you know, as you sort of alluded to, I, I work with a ton of women. Uh, mm-hmm. My fellowship program was entirely women. A lot of my, all of my mentors in the field are women. Um, I was oh, wow. very, very fortunate that uh, UT Southwestern, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center um, in Dallas, mm-hmm. where I did my residency at the time that I was there. Um, it had a, we had a female um, program director. We had a female associate program director. We had a female chief of radiology at Parkland Memorial Hospital. So that's the county hospital, the one that they took JFK to um, when uh-huh. he was shot. Uh, and that's mostly where I did my residency. And 50% of my um, class and even I think my residency as a whole was female. That's awesome. Yeah. So we had 12 to 13 people um, per class and my class mm-hmm. had six, six women. So heck yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, it's actually why I chose the program. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I interviewed for radiology, I was already very well aware that it was a male dominated field. Uh, every, yeah. every other program I went to was majority male. I might see one female, you know, resident that I'm sure they dragged out of somewhere to talk. Um, Mm -hmm. there were times when I was on an interview and there were no other female candidates. Um, yeah. And so, um, so that was interesting to me because I've, I've never, I don't know, I guess I didn't consider myself a trailblazer. Right. So, so I didn't think like, wow, I'm, you know, some woman that's lighting the way. Um, and so when I got to, to UT Southwestern, I was, uh, I mean, it was just noticeable right away um, that this was a completely different program. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I I was really thankful to have that experience, to have so many female mentors, both in um, residents who were ahead of me, um, who were my peers, and then my associate program director, um, who was my personal, like, I guess, whatever the mentor or advisor they assign you in residency. Mm Mm-hmm. So I have been really fortunate in that regards, but I know that there are other um, female trainees who had an entirely different experience. 
Um, yeah. You know, the women in my, per- we had a resident who I think had two, two or maybe even three babies during her five-year tenure. Wow. Um, and, and I know that female residents in other programs do not have that same experience or acceptance or, or mm-hmm. flexibility. And um, so, you know, right now the, the head of the um, head of the board of chancellors for the American college of radiology is a female, uh, Dr. Geraldine McGinty, who I would also consider, she's almost like a mentor for, for all women in radiology. Um, and That's a lot amazing. Of, and a lot of men too. And we do mm-hmm. have a lot of really um, amazing, strong women in radiology who um, are involved in the American College of Radiology and the Society of Breast Imaging and, and other, um, and other subspecialty societies. And, you know, we're all aware of the problem and working our hardest to try to, um, I, I would say one the one thing is the dispelling those misconceptions like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not all women enter various fields of medicine um, based on um, how they would, you know, be able to balance their lives, but some do. And, uh, you know, radiology can be a flexible career, just like primary care, um, you know, where you, you can find yourself uh, in an outpatient practice, if you'd like, where you're part-time or where you're, you know, um, no nights, no weekends. Um, radiology does, you know, offer patient care if you want it or none if you don't. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so, so I, I just think knowing the variety that's in radiology, um, both in the subject matter, but also the types of careers, is important. Um, you know, you've got someone like, uh, Michelle, who you guys had on for interventional radiology. Yeah. She's clearly yeah. living the full throttle or at least of course in training she is, but full mm-hmm. throttle lifestyle. And then that's something that she wants, but I know female interventional radiologists who did all that training and then went on to, uh, you know, have a largely cosmetic practice. They do veins and Botox. Um, yeah. and you know, that would not be, uh, the preferred lifestyle for me, but just knowing mm-hmm. that those options are out there, that, that radiology does not mean sitting in a dark room reading chest x-rays, that it means, yeah, you know, almost whatever you, you want it to, to a degree. That's so neat. You've, um, I was, well, I was creeping on your profile just to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> learn more about you and, um, you've just, you've done such uh, I, I really enjoyed all of your posts. Um, your content is awesome. Your educational style on there is so relatable. Um, and I, I'm just really glad that you are out there as a resource for more women in radiology. Um, I think, I think you are a very valuable asset and that's coming from someone who's just a nurse and a NICU, but I think. (laughs) Oh no, but come on, you, you're, those babies need you. Those moms oh, yeah. need you. Too. Yeah. <laughs> no, but thanks. I mean, I think that, um, you know, social media, a lot of people look at it as microblogging and, and a lot of people use their, their platforms in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a, a great way, I think, to be able to, to spread messages. So yeah, no, I hope that, I hope that my messages are reaching someone. Oh, they definitely are. And hopefully they'll reach more after this podcast comes out. Yeah. <laughs> So I like to do this segment now called Everything is Pulsable, mm-hmm. and you're already doing so much, but if you could, like, sky's the limit, what would make you, like, a million times happier than you already are? 
what would you, what more would you want or what more would you wish you could be doing? Yeah. I mean, I think impact is everything. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I think that just being able to have an impact, I mean, I am goal oriented after all. Right. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, um, have making that message into, you know, a material outcome, um, mm -hmm. where I'm actually seeing young women, um, taking their health into their hands and, and yeah. identifying their risk, uh, learning to reduce it. And also another thing that's really important to me that, you know, we haven't talked about because it's, it's not my job and it's not medicine, but I think it plays a huge part in our health. Um, certainly our own health and that of our planet is just being more environmentally conscious. Oh, definitely. Um, so, you know, climate change has a huge impact on really everything. Um, and, and mm -hmm. what we don't realize is the impact it has on, on healthcare disparities um, mm -hmm. and just our overall health in general. I mean, uh, you know, your poor populations are, are subject to air pollution. Um, yeah. The chemicals that women are putting into their bodies that are affecting our reproductive health, um, mm -hmm. our cancer risk. And so I would love to have an impact in that arena and, and this isn't for me or for my, you know, good. It's just for the greater good in general. I, I wish yeah. that people, um, you know, would consider doing more things that are, that are better for the environment, whether that's being package free or, you know, mm -hmm. composting or, or, you know, wasting less. Um, Cause I think that, again, I just, I think that women's health and, um, being environmentally conscious go hand in hand. 100%. And I would love to have you back on to do another episode just on that, if you'd be interested. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I can talk about, <laughs> I mean, sometimes people like get a little glassy eyed when I start talking about all the things that, you know, I personally do, but if you make them a lifestyle, they aren't, uh, they aren't burdens. They're just, no. they're just a way of life. So. Well, that and there was um, a test or a study that I read, uh, this was years ago, but someone had tested all of the different chemicals that were showing up in breast milk just from things that you ingest, you know, you breathe in the air and it was, it was like gasoline and everything yeah. that's, you know, transferring right to your baby. That is in no way a breast milk is great. Yes. I love breast milk for babies. <laughs> I'm just saying we need to be more consciously aware of all of our surroundings and what we're ingesting and where we're taking ourselves. So absolutely. We are at the end of our time. Dr. Mullick, would you like to give any final last words for our listeners, any other women in radiology or radiology students? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, um, just break down those barriers when it comes to thinking that radiologists are stuck in the dark. Um, so to any woman who's interested in any field of medicine, number one, um, you know, you can find a way to be a part of that field. Um, you, you never have to compromise who you are or who you want to be. Um, you have to, to shape it to your life and to what mm -hmm. you want. So whether that's radiology, whether that's medicine at all. Um, mm -hmm. And, and then um, just as always for all young women um, and men out there, just, just really um, be aware of uh, your risks, learn how to reduce them, um, how to live uh, you know, a healthy lifestyle and to succeed. 
Well, I love that. I think that's a beautiful ending note. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Uh, where can people find you? So I am on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Anjali Malik MD. Um, so my first name, last name, MD um, on both. And um, definitely Instagram is where I'm um, vocal about women's health and advocacy, education and empowerment. Um, Twitter, I use a little bit more for the radiology community, but certainly you can find, um, sometimes I'm retweeting, uh, you know, funny or cheeky things. So <laughs> check those out. Awesome. And uh, what's the handle for Bright Pink? At Be Bright Pink um, is definitely the one for Instagram. It might be the same for Twitter. I would have to verify that. But you can certainly just look up Bright Pink. They are very active on social media. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mullick. I really, really appreciate it. I've learned so much and it's been, you can definitely hear how passionate you are uh, when you speak about breast imaging and, and women in radiology. It's, it, it's been a joy talking to you today. Thank you so much. Major thank you to Dr. Anjali Mullick for joining me today to share her story. She may not know it, but hearing her speaking today about fear versus education and empowerment has really helped me. I have been trying to practice controlling the controllable during this time and letting go, breathing through that which I honestly can't. Please go check out Dr. Mullick on Instagram and Twitter at Anjali Mullick MD and her website, AnjaliMullickMD.com. Don't forget to send me your nursey energy moments to at the WOMED on Instagram. I love reading them and I love sharing them with the WOMED community. Until next week, WOMED out. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.